Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. Rivka, how's it going? What's been on your mind this week? It's been a, I feel like a lot's been going on this week, but um, I've been thinking a lot about a conversation that I had with my niece when I was with her in Puerto Rico, and she is, um, she's in her first year of college, which is really exciting. But we were having uh, just, you know, a catch-up conversation, and she kept asking me. She had a lot of concern because she doesn't know what she wants to do mm-hmm. and if she's picking the right path. And I sort of knew what I knew what I wanted to do. We were unique that we went to conservatory, but I still felt like I don't know. I felt like I was <laughs> my dad, really, just being like, you know, this is your time to to explore. Like, take a year off, go backpacking to Europe whatnot but I really believed it in that moment like this is no this is really your time like why would you have to know what you want to do or be at like 1920 yeah how old is she she's like 18 19 she's like 18 19 and she 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 looked at me and was just like I have to know I don't have time you had time Mm. I don't have time the planet is ending just so flat to the point did she say that? Did she say yeah, like, yeah, that's the, what the, she planet, said. the planet is ending? Oh, yeah, the planet is ending. Oh, I wow. don't have time. And I have to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. I have to put a stamp on my life. I have to, and I also have to like, it was interesting because then we got into a conversation of like, your life doesn't have to be about like the thing you do. You can still live a life. But of course, like under this context of capitalism and climate change, like it does. She's like and she's and I couldn't really I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I didn't know what to say other than I feel you. And I think our conversation became about practices of embodiment and meditation and and dance and breath work. And like because I felt this anxiety of like so not even in the body of just where do we go? what about the future when there is no future? So I don't know. I've been thinking heavily about this, especially in light of the Willow Project being approved by the Biden administration. Sure. Woohoo. Which actually, I wasn't even clear on what the Willow Project was, but I had two kids in my class who were the middle school class I teach, and they put together this amazing uh, sketch about it. Or not sketch, but they put together this amazing devised piece about it. And it was the first time um, I had heard it, but it was the first time I really understood it. And it was amazing. They had it was very simple. First, Trump uh, talking about the Willow Project, then Biden saying no to the Willow Project, then Biden getting elected, signing the Willow Project and Trump sort of like right by him. Like, so it was like they had such clear. I was like, that is such political clarity. And that <laughs> that gave me a moment of hope and that clarity. And then I think it'd be and then there was this polar bear that came into the audience and died on our laps and there were apples drenched in oil. It was pretty profound. Wow. So, um, immersive theater. <laughs> immersive and terrifying theater. And then, and this was before Biden signed off on this. And so that was really devastating and uh, testament to their art making that I was just like, had that visual of the polar bear in my head. So anyone who doesn't know, this is the oil drilling project, which will happen in Alaska and... Um, 
by the end, I mean, there's many catastrophes that will occur as a result, but essentially adding about two million cars worth of gas to the roads and I mean, not actually cars, but that'll be the amount. Um, yeah, the equivalent. The equivalent. Yeah. So and it was also just kind of a big F you to all the climate organizers who rallied, you know, to get get the votes for him over Trump in office because he was supposed to be our big climate guy. So that, those are just a few of the things on my mind. <laughs> I feel you. It's it's difficult to make it through even a few days in our current uh, political economy and not worry about these things, not worry about the future. I mean that there you there's people who do it. There I know people who do it, but they're you know there's a a level of compartmentalizing and uh, obfuscation that needs to take place in order to bury that stuff deep down enough where you don't worry about it. So I think most people. It is very much at the front of their mind. And it, you know, I saw someone online recently said something like, uh, you know, that pit of your stomach anxiety, that that fear, that thing that you are regularly feeling in this world today, that is a that is our biological reaction and our evolutionary reaction to a life-threatening situation. But in this case, it's not like, a lion in the savanna. Mm. It's it's like this creeping knowledge that in tw 10, 20, 30, however many years, things will start getting worse and crumbling and whatever. And all the things that we know about climate change. And and then that's also paired with like this this mass inability to do anything about it. So yes. I, I mean I can't I can't imagine what that feels like. I mean, I know I feel it as a millennial, as a now 35 year old millennial so i can't imagine what your niece feels it as a as a 19 year old person who has like the whole of their life to look forward to so that's that's a lot that's really important though i think how you what you just said about our body's natural response and perhaps that's why partially why my instinct was to talk about embodied practice and just talk about the body in the face of being like i don't know what to say cuz you're totally right mm -hmm. but validating that that we do so much normalizing of bullshit in like normalizing of like ignoring this as like this is how you actually cope like the only thing you can do is ignore this and like pretend things feel better and numb numb your intuition away but that validating that feeling when someone says no I'm really anxious and scared and as opposed to saying like why no you don't it's gonna be fine like just it's okay to say like yeah totally that makes a lot of sense we we should feel that. And we actually can do things ab ab about it, but it's not to ignore it because that's only going to make the situation worse for our mental health. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who's been in therapy knows that the one of the worst things you can do to work through a negative emotion is try to ignore it or to bury it. And you have to just you have to just engage with it head on and feel it and understand why you're feeling it. Because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to work through it. I mean, this is this is stuff that I deal with regularly as someone who suffers from pretty severe anxiety at times. Yeah. You just got to be like, I am feeling anxious and because of these reasons and, you know. And it's the opposite of everything that we're we've been taught culturally in school like no, put on a smile. Things are fine. Yeah. If you smile, then you'll then eventually you'll feel better. We don't have to look at at the root cause of any of this. I mean, the fact that we are not taught how to engage with and articulate our emotions in 
this country, but I think also the world. Like, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know any countries that like really teach children from a young age, like this is where your feelings come from. This is the way to, to talk about them. This is the way to articulate them. And not just your feelings, but your thoughts as well. You know, mm. I, it's such a shame because there are so many people who go through life in this world who have all this stuff swirling around inside of them and they've never been taught how to articulate them and or just how to reconcile their own thoughts and feelings with themselves. I mean, I'm in therapy. I know you're in therapy. We both like also went to theater school. So we, you know, we, we, we went to a school where we were regularly talking about our feelings. And even still with all of that training, I still at times I'm like, I'm still figuring this out. I'm still mm -hmm. figuring out how to, work through my own thoughts and feelings and learn how to articulate them and work through them in a healthy way. So yeah, it's just a real, it's a real shame that that is not a, a skill or an ability that we um, prioritize in our society. I mean, imagine how much, imagine how much strife would be saved if just like a bunch of like rich dudes just like knew how to be like, well, I'm actually, I want all of this money because like my mommy was mean to me, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, for real, but yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we should get to our conversation. But first, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Judas and the Black Messiah with Ryan Christian. We are joined by our guest today, Ryan Christian. Ryan is an up-and-coming actor, screenwriter, singer, and all-around performer currently working on his first feature film debut project titled A Child's Story, a musical dramedy inspired by real-life events that transpired during the year of 2020. Ryan can also be seen in future showings of the off-Broadway play Port Chicago 50, a drama based off World War II events that happened to untrained Black Navy soldiers. Ryan, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome. Hi, Rivka. Hi, Frank. I'm happy to be here. We did it. Yes, we did it. And I know I wanted I wanted to get you on as a guest because when we first met, you were a self-proclaimed cinephile. And I have to say, it's such a joy to talk about movies with you. Every time we meet, you have this wonderful um, knowledge for films and your love for films. So I knew I had to get you on. Um, and we've also had a lot of great conversations about politics. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when we first met, I was... Uh confusing you for someone else that had uh, actually been emailing me prior to us meeting at the workshop we were a part of. And then I um, quickly got to know that you were, you're, you're very uh, caring and very uh, cool to be around. And it's, it's great to be here. Thank you. 
Yes. Thank you for being here. So Ryan, you chose and Frank, you're okay too. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Ryan, I know we just met, but I'm I'm definitely as nice and as caring as Rivka is. That's not true at all, but uh, we can pretend. We can pretend. Yes, yeah, so Ryan, you chose the film uh, Judas and the Black Messiah for us to watch, released in 2021, written by Shaka King and Will Burson, directed by Shaka King, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, Dominique Fishback, Ashton Sanders, and Martin Sheen. Produced by Charles King and Ryan Coogler. Um, this film was released in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It had a budget of $26 million and grossed uh, around $7 million worldwide. Critically, the film did very well. Nominated it for five Academy Awards and it won two for Best Original Song and Best Supporting Actor for Kaluuya. The story is it's a biographical drama that tells the story of Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party in the late 1960s, played by Daniel Kaluuya, and William O'Neill, an FBI informant who infiltrated the party and betrayed Hampton, played by Lakeith Stanfield. And the film follows O'Neill's recruitment by the FBI, his assignment to get close to Hampton, whom the agency sees as a threat to national security, and as O'Neill gains the trust of the party, becomes Hampton's personal security detail, he is forced to confront the moral consequences of his actions and the extent to which he is willing to betray his own community for personal gain. So some context for when this film came out in 2021, although it was shot in 2019, um, it came out in 2021. This was 52 years since Fred Hampton was murdered by the FBI. During 2021, not that long ago, but feels like a long time ago, the COVID-19 pandemic was continuing to impact the world with a total number of cases exceeding 325 million and deaths surpassing 5 million by the end of the year. The January 6th insurrection took place at the United States Capitol building. Two weeks later, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States, succeeding Donald Trump. The COVID-19 vaccine becomes available through the early part of the year. And other films that came out that year were Nomadland, The Father and My Octopus Teacher. In November 2021, a jury found former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter in the case of George Floyd, a black man whose murder by the police sparked widespread protests in 2020. So this is the context for when this film came out. So we... A lot happening. A lot happening. So, Ryan, I just want to start with this was I remember when I asked you what film you wanted to choose, this was immediately came came to you. Why did you pick this film for us to discuss? I remember when I had first seen it, um, I had been traveling with a group of friends at the time to Philadelphia for one of my friends to film a short. And then we had traveled to Jersey after um, in the midst of us going back home because we had seen that the film was actually available in at least one theater in Jersey. And the, at the time, um, the actual idea of seeing a film in theaters was foreign to everyone because we hadn't seen. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was like re-entering atmosphere that was familiar, but, kind of like a bit um overwhelming to some degree because there were other people within the theater as well and 
I remember um, not even taking into account just um, how powerful the overall messaging of the film was because I was more distraught, if anything, of the story that had been introduced to me and a series of other people that was very little known. Um, but then years later, I thought of how with my sort of um, political progression, how I was so heavily influenced not only by the film, but later on by Fred, um, Chairman Fred Hampton's actual work and the Black Panther Party as a whole. And I thought to myself how so many people um, seldom know about the events that took place in the late 60s, early 70s, because not only were we just sort of giving props more so to the whitewashed versions of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., but we were also just sort of uh, going day to day with um, our practices of liberalism in so some degree, because before the pandemic had hit, it seemed as if everyone was in a strange, uh, like within the U.S. nation in particular, like a strange semi-apolitical kind of liberal and if not then just straight up republican state of uh you know political affiliation and then when the pandemic had hit we started noticing a lot of people started noticing more and more oh a lot of the practices that i was adhering to don't seem to be working out for me and that was me in particular because I was always somewhat politically savvy, but then films like Judas and the Black Messiah and other films as well had just pointed out to me that there was a lot underneath the surface that it seems the pandemic especially had brought to the surface and just laid it all out to really showcase how, especially within our nation, the capitalist society that we, at least a lot of people used to, and still sometimes do, um, adhere to doesn't really play out well for us. And I think this film is the perfect encapsulation of all of that. That's such a good point, Ryan, that I hadn't even really considered that this movie came out at a time when, like you were saying, you know, this, the systems and the structures and the institutions that we had all grown up with were starting to crumble you know, sort of like the veneer was pulled back. People were starting to realize that there were these bigger systemic issues at play um, and a time of mass radicalization. You know, a, a lot of people found themselves moving either farther to the left or, you know, at, and also in cases farther to the right. So, yeah, that's it's this is an important movie to have come out at that time. Yeah, it made me think jumping right in. I love how you talk about the role of film as a source of education. And certainly it can be miseducation, which is what we talk about in the context of the ideologies that we might not even be conscious of in certain media. But here there's like a deep consciousness. Certainly what I read from the filmmakers to make sure to tell this story correctly and also to tell this story while in connection with um, Fred Hampton's family. 
I know that his his wife and son were heavily involved and on set and it was important for them to make sure that they okayed the story. I think Daniel Kaluuya even went down to meet with them before they went ahead and told the story, which is so not the case with so many films. There's this, I mean, look at what happened with Pamela Anderson's story, right? There's such an idea that you can just go and tell someone's story without any of their permission, even if they're alive and you're somehow doing a service. It also made me think um, what you were saying, Ryan, about the 10-point program, which was put forward by the Black Panther uh, Party, which we will actually, I think we should link this in our show notes for anyone who wants to read this 10-point program because... It definitely um, changed me to read it fully. But I know that their fifth point is we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. So what you were saying just made me think about how important it is that this aligns with that 10 point principle. Yeah, I think that ultimately when we uh, start to educate ourselves especially through the guise of what has um, been silenced over time within like historical events like the Red Scare and uh, Reaganomics, you can see that um, there has been a very um, prominent and visceral reaction to the ideas of not only anti-capitalist rhetoric, but just straight up communism and socialism as a whole. And when you actually get to know the Black Panthers story and you even get to know the true story, not the whitewashed version of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, you start to see that there was a plethora of ideas that weren't being um, shown in the right light. They weren't being um, interpreted by most media outlets in a way that was actually fair because FBI, CIA, most law enforcement entities, you know, were so geared towards protecting the status quo and you see that to this day because with a lot of right-wingers, um, it's apparent that even within the most, I guess, articulate of arguments made by leftists towards uh, right-wingers, it still just begs to question that a lot of right-wing policies just end up coming to a conclusion of, I know what you're saying, but um, I'm still going to portray it as bad because I don't want it in my backyard. I don't want these people in my uh, vicinity. I don't want this culture, whatever the case may be, this gender identity, this um, solidarity really to happen. And I feel like that's um, just the case with practically every film and every show it's like you can um skirt past the facts you can uh make light of all these figures that have 
been so adamant about making sure that the truth comes to light, but ultimately it's not because you want to build any nuance. It's not because you want to actually like build a conversation that's productive or even just like have people get along. It's because you want to protect your side of um, capital and overall sustainability. And that's what I get from the film the most, especially with um, the the character, the real life person rather of uh, William O'Neill and uh, Roy Mitchell, the FBI agent who recruited him. Yeah, no, that's such a great point, Ryan, about and how we see so many of these stories of these revolutionary radical figures be commodified. And so it can be Hollywoodized to tell a classic biopic, but you realize that so much of the story is not being told. And I really feel like this film made a big effort not to do any of that and straight up from the top and and I talk about education but I don't feel like this film is didactic at all it's so incredibly well done from I mean from the writing to the acting to the cinematography every moment to me felt just perfect I can't believe I know Nomadland won the Oscar that year but I think this film should have won best picture Daniel Kaluuya won um Best Supporting Actor, but it's also ridiculous that they both Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya were nominated for Supporting Actor, which is insane because if they're both supporting actors in this movie, who is the lead? Who is the lead? It's so I mean, Daniel should have been nominated for Best Actor, in my opinion, and won. And then Lakeith could have won as well. And Dominique should have been nominated as well. I think everyone should have been nominated. Um, she's fantastic in this she's movie. fantastic to speak to both of your points um this movie di- really doesn't shy away from its politics which i really really appreciated especially at the time that it came out that you know right off the bat the first one of the first things we see is martin sheen as j edgar hoover in a just disgusting looking makeup they really tried to make him look as terrible as possible as evil on the outside as he is as evil as possible yeah and him giving this presentation to other fbi agents where he says you know we must stop a black messiah from rising through the ranks of the black panthers and he explicitly says one with the potential to unite the communists the anti-war and the new left movements you know this is very clearly the state using its power to target leftist organizations and the first thing we hear uh kaluuya as fred hampton say is in that film clip where he says you know we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism we're going to fight it with socialism so right Mm -hmm. off the bat this movie is like here are this film's politics and it does not shy away from them at all and the whole opening is so perfect because there's so much information done given there's so many i mean i think they have all in the first few minutes we hear from Huey P. Newton is in jail we hear Angela Davis we hear Bobby Seals they've clips from all these revolutionaries and that's hard that's hard to do to like get the right quotes the right you know and they do such it's so well crafted to be able to set us up to exactly to bring us to the point of there's a we know what the problem is there's a rise of this black messiah who's just incredibly charismatic and going to do these great things and we know who the bad guy is and it's um 
J. Edgar Hoover. I think we have we have a clip I'd love to play from that opening segment as well that sets up the movie so beautifully. This is uh, H. Rap Brown, a revolutionary of the Black Power Movement. Those are not riots. Those are rebellions. People are rebelling because of conditions and not because of individuals. No individual creates a rebellion. It's created out of the conditions. I wanted to ask you both this question, and that clip teed this up nicely. And Ryan, we've had this conversation a few times on this show about revolutionary leaders versus revolutionary movements and how important is an individual leader to an overall movement, which is comprised of many, many people who are organizing. So I'm curious with that context, what did you think about this film in terms of how it positioned Fred as the black Messiah, as the person who would essentially unite and save everybody um, against, you know, all of the organizing efforts that the Panthers as a, large national organization was doing? Did you feel like it gave too much credence specifically to Hampton? Like, you know, nothing would have happened without him? Or like, where where did you come down on that? Within the context of how the story was told, it always begs the question for me as to when I researched um, his full story and the Black Panther's full story, it always begged the question as to how influential he was versus how influential the overall community was as a whole. And I think that because of Fred and because of Huey P. Newton, especially, there was an idea that was planted within the minds of um, the children that they had within uh, their free breakfast programs and uh, people that they recruited in order to house and feed people that in order for there to be a revolution, there has to be someone that is charismatic enough that is um, ultimately just able to withstand every storm and showcase it to others in a way that makes people feel like they can do the same thing that this person is doing. And I think that is within any system, really, whether we were to, as a nation, just subscribe to socialism as a whole within the next week, it's like we would still need people that would be able to be representative representative of what we're fighting for, what we're overall trying to achieve, because for some reason, I don't know why, but it seems that psychologically, um, people are more susceptible to subscribing to an ideal if they see that it works for someone, even if it doesn't work for everyone. If it works for someone, they're able to subscribe to it. And I think that's why capitalism specifically has such a chokehold on the um, overall overall society. Because we see like how Hampton addressed um, within the opening about Black capitalism. We see that, especially within communities that marginalize, that even if there may be the majority of the community that is marginalized. If they see, let's say, a rapper or a 
um, actor or a writer that looks like them, that identifies with what they identify with, then all of a sudden they feel like they can do it. They can just pull themselves by their bootstraps and they'll be all right because that person did the same thing. And what I love about Hampton and the Black Party movement was that they didn't just make symbolic gestures to showcase that they could um, do certain achievements that are not necessarily susceptible to the overall majority of the communities that they were serving. They were able to actually go to the Blackstone Rangers, I believe, um, the Young Patriots, the uh, the several different groups, and not just talk, but actually show them that this could actually work for it. a lot of people, if not everybody. Yeah. And when you see films like this that just demonstrate up close and personal that socialism and all these other um ideas that people haven't yet fully subscribed to within our society is actually capable of housing people for free as a human right and feeding children, feeding people and clothing people and all. It really begs the question to me is like, well, why are people still trying to climb to the top of the ladder just because they see other people like a small little subset of people have been able to do it. Yeah. And within all personal aspects, it puts me in a position where doomerism sort of comes into play. And even with, especially like not going to skip to the end of course, but just to mention the end of the film is just, uh, it, it, it doesn't solidify that for me, but it just, amplifies it to a degree where it's like oh man well okay i guess people just love to uh drink the kool-aid i was just gonna say I, you made so many great points ryan and i think i'm with you on the i'm on i'm on the same page i thought this i thought the film did a really great job of representing how important someone willing to step up and serve and have the right tools of service i mean what an incredible orator um, Fred Hampton was and how remarkable it is to watch Daniel Kaluuya channel with every fiber of his being um, that charisma and that deep truth, which you must, it, it does, it feels like you're born, some people are born with this higher purpose, which does feel perhaps Jesus-esque you know, Messiah-esque. I wasn't raised with in any kind of religion with these stories, but when I think of, like, the best parts of what I hear from of stories of Jesus, is this kind of person feeding the poor, educating, offering medical service, being able to organize. Like, I would like to think that Jesus is this great organizer as seen through Fred Hampton. And yet, the film starts off again, showing you this historic, making a point to show you the all of these great people in the movement. It starts by showing you Huey P. Newton, Angela Davis, 
So I do think you get a sense of where Fred Hampton sits in this movement, that he's not the one, he's one of many. And the FBI was aware of that, too. That was like part of part of their plan, right, is I mean, part of the reason they decide to the narrative of the murder of Fred Hampton is that, well, if you put him in jail like QEP Newton, you'll um, make him a celebrity you know, so you get the sense that, like, they are a force to be reckoned with as a collective. And again, you you like you were saying, Ryan, you see, which is really hard to do. I know in what I've read from the director and the writer that, like, it was very frustrating to not be able to get the budget to make a three hour biopic like you've seen with like a Lincoln or these other films because there is so much. So that's the other thing that I think is incredible, like how you get so much into two hours that's got such a rich history, but they do a great job of showing you cinematically like the depths of this organizing. You see how many people were involved to get these schools started, to get these medical facilities started. And they get a lot of storylines in there, which is amazing. And you watch it all develop from the ground up. You know, it starts, It's this whole film is rooted in community. It starts, like you said, Rivka, with the free breakfasts for kids, the medical clinics, the mutual aid they're doing, the political education they're doing for for younger kids in the neighborhood. And then it expands. You like watch class consciousness happen in action as he is as he goes to the to the crowns, to the young lords, to the young patriots, uh, all of these disparate, you know, racially different groups from different backgrounds, but, you know, unifies them um under and it's it's very clear the whole movie under what unifies them is their oppression by the state and this is for me in rewatching this again i'm like this is a film about revolution and the state like both of those powers both of those conflicting powers and particularly how much power the state is able to wield and you know this is probably the first time a lot of people heard about Cointelpro, which was the FBI's counterintelligence program, or finding out that the FBI assassinated Fred Hampton or was up to some shit like this. But I mean, if you if you don't know, this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg, because it cannot be overstated how much influence and violence that the FBI and CIA have exerted against left wing organizations and international left wing governments in the last century. I mean, along with what happened in this, the, the assassination of Hampton, they targeted and surveilled Martin Luther King. They infiltrated and sabotaged so many political organizations like the Panthers, like the CPUSA. They individually targeted activists, and they did a bunch of illegal shit like planting evidence and breaking into places and uh, illegal wiretaps and even murdering people. So I just wanted to lay that out for the audience because I think it's really important to know you know, we hear we constantly hear all these things like, oh, you know, the Soviet Union's government, that was like that was authoritarianism or like, oh, Cuba's government, that that's a authoritarianism, too. You get, like this is the shit that the U.S. state has been doing for decades and centuries. And I didn't even get to the uh, to the coups of left wing governments that they've been doing around the world for uh for the last half a century. Absolutely. And it's brutal. And this film does not back down from it. There is it's like there, it's very clear. It's the FBI. It's the police. And the brutality is not shied away from. Again, you can see where there would have been the opportunity for a studio to get in there and say, you have to tone this down or you can tell this story. And it, like you were alluding to, Ryan, as we've seen many times, um, tell the story in a different way. 
But the last scene when you see Fred Hampton be murdered, so spoiler, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this podcast, you know we're talking about these films. So I'm not spoiling this for anyone. Based on real life events. It's also based on real life events. So this did happen. But what was, what's kind of amazing about the way they filmed this, I read that in the film, she's comrade Deborah Johnson, and later she takes the name Aku and Jerry, amazing revolutionary played by Dominique Fishback. She was on the set when they filmed that last scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Which is unbelievable to consider. And she had given Dominique Fishback the actual note of not crying and not making a sound during the last two shots that were given to Fred Hampton in his sleep because that's actually what happened. She had literally had a gun pointed to her pregnant belly and then she was taken to an area where she didn't look back. She just stared into the distance. And what really um, gets me is how um, within the entirety of the film, especially if you don't know about the um, actual story, you have this idea that something tragic is actually going to take place. And yet within uh, the film itself, especially as it progresses with um, William O'Neill's affiliation with the FBI, as he um, associates himself with the Panthers, it's a question as to, there were several informants within the Panther movement. A couple of them, at least nine of them, were actually um, held by Roy Mitchell, who recruited William O'Neill. And the funny thing is, you get a question for how many people are actually informants or how many people are actually there for the cause and if William O'Neill himself is starting to really revel in the idea of being an actual Panther rather than not just straight out betraying them for the sake of affiliating with the FBI. And yet you never ever question Dominique Fishback in her role because it's always from the get-go what she's introduced is always so genuine and always so supportive and she's she brings the artistry i mean they their love story is so beautifully introduced and it's some of the some of those scenes are so profound between them and so well acted they're just incredible but she's the poet and she's the one who tells fred hampton you know you're a poet and it's just the writing there is also amazing as well but i i so appreciate Yes, like you're saying, her development, where she goes, and then that devastating last moment, as you described, and while she's, you know, she's in frame, staring out with that direction, don't you cry, which I can't even imagine being there in that moment, and then the officers in the back saying, oh, he's almost alive, and shooting him again. Just again, how this film doesn't back down from the brutality and making it very clear that the police and the FBI are monsters and they started the war and this was their war. And how, to your point as well, of how many um, infiltrators there were and they follow the storyline as well with George Sams and Alex Rackley, which is amazing how many storylines they get in here. But um, 
how organized and how powerful and how much more organized, you know, the challenge that even even though the Black um, Panther Party was so profoundly organized, it makes it clear like they did not, this was a battle, but the fact that they got as far as they got against the freaking FBI with as much power and money and organization that they had is pretty amazing. And in that sense, hopeful. Definitely hopeful. And that's an important point, Rivka, because like the FBI, the, the, the amount of power that the U.S. state has to wield is pretty much uh, is pretty unfathomable at times. And I mean, uh, William O'Neill says in this movie when he first gets arrested for impersonating an FBI agent that this is how we meet his character. He's 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 robbing people in his neighborhood, pretending to be an FBI agent. When he gets picked up after the robbery goes bad, uh, Jesse Plemons as Roy Mitchell is like, why why pretend to be an FBI agent? Why not just use a gun or a knife? And he's like, if you have a badge, it's like you have the whole army behind you, which is such a profound line that sets up how much power the state is going to wield throughout this movie. Although I do want to push back just a tiny bit on like how well organized and how efficient the FBI is, because obviously <laughs> they they are in a lot of ways. But if you really dig into like the recesses of CoinTelPro, like there's a lot of there's a lot of dudes, and they're all dudes, but there's a lot of dudes in there who are just kind of like bumbling idiots who fucked a lot of stuff up. Um, <laughs> in particular, if you listen to, there's a great podcast called Blowback. Um, they did an amazing season about the Cuban Revolution and everything that transpired afterwards. And like the FBI, the CIA, they were just throwing shit against the wall. They were just like, maybe this will take down Castro. Maybe this will take him down. And like, so yes, there's efficiency, but they're also just a bunch of more fucking... power and money than brains. <laughs> yeah. But power and money, man, goes far. While we're on it, there's a few things I want to go back to. But let's let's talk a little bit more about O'Neill, William O'Neill, who is the Judas of it all, and also uh, Lakeith Stanfield's incredible performance. Yeah, Incre- There were so many incredible performances that it's like I don't. I think they got a little not overshadowed, but obviously Kalia won. But Lakeith Stanfield, oh my. God and what a role what a role he I found a quote he talked about talked about playing this and that he had to break down the barriers of his own ego to tap into who this guy was because it's the deepest betrayal and I think this is one of the only films that I think the interview using sort of the interview talking head as a way to tell the story worked for me yes successfully it was so successful and so authentic and organic Mm-hmm. And then Lakeith playing O'Neill later on. I mean, just in terms of craft and what he does, he's a totally different person. It's incredible to see. But yeah, let's talk about O'Neill because, wow. You know, it's interesting because when it comes to um, my first screening that I witnessed of Judas and the Black Messiah, it occurred to me that I felt bad for O'Neill initially as a character, but didn't really know much about him as um, a real, you know, figure. And then it was actually last night where I decided to take it upon myself to view the actual Eyes on the Prize documentary that he had done, which was the only documentary that he had ever done. The only footage of him ever that he interviewed, was interviewed um, for about the Black Panther movement, about what he had done and all that right before he had committed suicide the night of the documentary airing. And I couldn't get through 
And this is the first time I've ever never been able to get through a full interview or footage that could be deemed disturbing in any sort of light because no one is being murdered brutally. No one is being um, violated in any sort of way in this video. Yet you see in his eyes just profound and immense sense of regrets and pain. And <laughs> it's contrasted by him blatantly deflecting or ignoring or minimizing his uh, whole position within having Hampton murdered. There's several uh, um, statements he makes that contradict each other. He states that he didn't know that there was going to be a raid and later states something about the raid that only people who were involved in the raid would know and all this stuff. And in the end, he makes the statement that he said, and I'm paraphrasing, that he would leave everything up to history, that he would just let the documentary um, speak for him and that uh, he wasn't necessarily one of those armchair revolutionaries that just sat on the sidelines doing nothing and, but talking a lot of game that he was actually a part of the revolution and he was actually, he, he played a part basically. You, you, you just see throughout the whole interview, you just know that in his heart of hearts, he doesn't believe anything he's saying. He doesn't really subscribe to, oh, well, I was in the, the Black Panthers, but I, I didn't really adhere to their ideologies. I didn't really actually like being around. And I, it's all this stuff. It's all this fluff. And you see it in his eyes. And it was too painful to watch because you just, because especially after the circumstances of um, what transpired literally the night of after he filmed that. It's like, okay, well, that's that's haunting in itself. It's like watching a ghost just sort of try to hold on to humanity. Wow, that was beautifully said, Ryan. And that pain in his eyes, I think, and that pain of watching a character like O'Neill and as... Stanfield plays him in the film, the nuance there and the complexity is also the understanding that is set up at the very top, that this is someone who is made by their context, that the conditions are what set O'Neill up more than necessarily the individual or who O'Neill was. I, I just, I, that's what I took from it. I think there's the question there, of course, like the question of would anyone become this Judas? But certainly they make the point of showing how he doesn't have a, you know, the FBI does not give him a choice. Basically, it's like you die or you die. And and it's a classic tactic, like the deeper you go, then the more leverage uh Again, you're watching the state exert its power. At the top, it's just, hey, we've got you for you know five years for impersonating a federal officer, so you better do what we say. And then the deeper he gets, then it becomes, hey, you saw what, ha you saw what happened to that rat? 
that 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 one informant, that's what's going to happen to you, and even worse because you're so deep into this thing. So it's just it's they're constantly moving the the goal line for him in terms of like what he needs to do, what he needs to accomplish, and how how willing the FBI is to sacrifice him and push him to get what they want. Um, and yeah, like you said, he's set up by these conditions. And I just ultimately, what you're saying made me think like ultimately by not rebelling right there's this idea that maybe going after the capitalist carrot if you will seeking money seeking profit you know just staying in the quote-unquote rat race versus choosing revolution being a part of the revolution giving yourself over to revolution ultimately because suicide starts way before it, it it happens you know you almost get the sense that he's been tortured on this path of torture and the fact that he stays an informant for so long and they make a point of saying he goes on, you know, at the end he gets the keys to a gas station and he goes on to make all this money, but he's living in utter torture. There is an utter torture to staying in the illusion of capitalism. It really drives home something that I've been so uh, irritated by within society as a whole, because, um, to be honest, um, there is a great deal of right-wing people and there's a great deal of left-wing people. But what I think trumps left-wingers in terms of um, a proximity or in terms of uh, ultimate uh, numbers is that there's that one group that always um, manages to shy by and um those are the centrists those are the apolitical types those are the ones of which that you know they kind of dabble in, or may not dabble at all they just want to you know live their lives and figure out how to get money and how to you know just go day to day and O'Neill had been quoted within his interview particularly as being raised as an apolitical type. And that group in particular outshines the right-wingers, the leftists, because within being born and growing up, especially within the education system that we find ourselves in, you don't have a sense for what is ultimately politically savvy, what is ultimately um, within your best interests, not just as an individual, but within the collective of people that you're around, surrounded by. You just know that you are in school, that you're growing up, that you're just going through your ups and downs. And ultimately, that leads to a lot of people becoming centrist without even knowing it, because within the knowledge that is not set for them, they don't know what they don't know. And this is why O'Neill was placed within a position where he was between a rock and a hard place because he, especially in the film, blatantly asked about what he felt about MLK's assassination. He was asked about his um, political beliefs. He was asked about all these things to gauge from the FBI 
uh, Roy Mitchell's perspective to gauge whether or not he will be a good candidate to just go in the Panther Party and infiltrate and see what comes from it. There's millions of O'Neills walking around to this day or potential O'Neills because a lot of people are falling victim to complacency. They don't want to struggle, but at the same time, they don't know that within their daring not to struggle, as Hampton put it, as I paraphrase, they dare not to win. You know, they decide that they're going to struggle without any sense of actually achieving something viable. They just feel as if they'll grow up, they'll get their degree or maybe not. They'll just find a good job to get a family, possibly, maybe not, and just go about their days. And that's one of the biggest things that's irritated me overall because it just makes people like O'Neill and then it gives people like Edgar Hoover and Roy Mitchell a lot more power. Ryan, I'm really glad you brought this up about centrists because I totally <laughs> agree with you. And I don't worry, I also get irritated in the same way. And there's different flavors of centrism. You know, there's like the politically agnostic who are just like, I, I just don't like thinking about it. But then there's the people, then there's the centrism of, well, you know, the left and the right are both, the more extreme you get, they're both bad. So the the correct answer must be somewhere here in the middle, right? And I hate that false equivalency so much. <laughs> and it's when you think about it for more than two seconds, you realize how dumb it is. And they draw that equivalency in this movie when Mitchell tells O'Neill, you know, uh, he tells him this story about the Ku Klux Klan in the South and these activists that they murdered. And he says, you know, the Panthers are the other side of that coin. You know, the Panthers are as bad as the Klan. And this is something I'm sure a lot of people have heard throughout their political education in this country. And it's such bullshit. And it still happens today. People say the far yes. left and the far right are the same. And it's not true because people on the left who want everyone to have health care, housing, and education are not the same as fascists. And people who burn down a Bank of America during a protest are not the same as white supremacists who murder activists. And just like in this movie, black people arming themselves to protect one another and their communities is not the same as a corrupt and racist police state that has a monopoly on violence. So Yes. And the, the myth of neutrality. Unfortunately, being in a body as a human being makes you inherently political, whether or you like it or not. And, and the myth that something political is inherently bad, you know, it's it can be beautiful. It, 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 it's necessary. It's just organizing. It is who we are in relationship to each other. It's recognizing that we are in a collective interdependent on this planet, to reliant on one another, whether we like it or not. And so I'm so with you as well that this idea of any kind of central location as being morally better because it's a neutral space is bullshit. And I think some people may think, oh, I'm not going to think about my politics. You don't have to think about it, but you are you are your politics. You are just by existing in a space of the political. So you you'll have more agency if you wake up to that. And 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 to that end, I agree with you. That is some that is create some of our most dangerous 
people like a like an O'Neill. Before we end, I would just love to go back um, and maybe wrap up just on this point we were talking about earlier about the politics of the Black Panthers and particularly the leadership of Fred Hampton and his unique ability that they really highlight in this film to unify a collective of different organizing forces like the Young Lords, like the Young Patriots, the Crowns in this movie, bring them together when they on the ground feel like they have been at each other's throats for so long. He's able to go in weapons aside, which is pretty fucking brave (laughs) to walk into these spaces, put your weapons down and give a speech like this. Look, we oppressed your people for a long time. I didn't oppress shit. And my folks grew up poor. They were sharecroppers. AKA the overseer. What if the overseer had banded with the slaves and cut the masses through? What then, comrade? We might not be in this funky ass ghetto right now. I'm not talking about the west side or the south side. I'm talking this filthy ass motherfucker right here. Shit. We almost got into it with a rat over a parking space. I bet y'all babies getting the same bullshit education. Y'all paying the same taxes to get your heads whooped in by the same motherfucking pigs. Ain't that a trip? We paid eight. We paid the pigs to run us off of our corners. Let me ask y'all something. If this building caught fire right now, what would y'all worry about, huh? Water and escape. If somebody would ask you, what's your culture during this fire, brother? Water. That's my culture. Well, how about your politics? Water and escape. Well, guess what? America's on fire right now. And until that fire's extinguished, don't nothing else mean a goddamn thing. I mean, I hear that and I'm like, that's who we need in a leader today. And people, often the centrists we're talking about or our, our good liberals will say, oh, no, that is far too radical. There's nothing radical about that. That is actually <laughs> who could disagree. And I really do not. I think when people really hear that message, they don't disagree. Of course, to have someone to have a leader in service who really can articulate that in a way that you can reach. And there is an art to being able to reach a crowd, reach the people you're talking to. I think that's what we need to be looking in this direction or else, honestly, we're fucked. You know, for the past, like, two weeks, and this is something that I'm open to discussing with everybody and anybody because I just feel like this is something that is needed. Um, I have been going through the most uh, horrid of battles with uh, depression and um, overall doomerism. And I had been diagnosed um, earlier, I believe this year, last year, rather, with um, ADHD and bipolar um, too. And what had um, really registered with me been watching the film again earlier, like two, three weeks ago, was that there is a sense of impending doom that uh, a lot of people can relate to. And a lot of people don't know how to articulate because they feel as if they see things within the news, they see things going on within their neighborhoods, and they talk it up to just 
oh, well, you know, that pandemic, it was crazy and people, you know, act crazy and, you know, people are inherently crazy as a whole. What really um, registers for me and what really, like, gets me out of bed and most times is that I always feel as if people are only as good as what they want themselves to be. And we have this idea that because within the systems that we're in, or even if we're not savvy to the systems that we live under, we just have this idea that people are going to just do what they do. And there's nothing that you can do to control that. And there's nothing that you can do to really um, change that. And every time I hear the words of Hampton, every time I hear the words of MLK, when you look into depth about his anti-capitalist lens or Malcolm X or even um, figures like uh, James Baldwin, you see that there is always something pulling somebody to feel as if there's more to life than just feeling hopeless. There's more to life than just feeling as if things are just the way they are and that's just how things are and you can't really do much about it. And you always see these figures and you think that can't be you. And yet within most uh, capacities, you see that people just need to have the willpower or something that tells them that whatever society has conditioned them to feel as if they are inherently um, just incapable of doing because of whatever diagnosis they've been given, whatever idea that they have in their head that um, won't register to other people is just a fluke in itself because a lot of leftists have been discussing lately the idea of whether or not these diagnoses are um, even capable of defining us rather than just actually seeing that the education, edu education system, the job workforce, the overall just overall um, elements that compose our societies are just not working. And that's okay because it showcases that we can make something better and we can do something that can actually make something viable for more than just one or a few people. And I can't stress that enough that that's why I feel like films like these are important, why they're more important than any superhero film you'll see, any um, comedy, any, um, you know, film that is just garnered to entertain. Because at the same time, you look at films like these, you look at films like Till and all these um, films that showcase that there's a reason why we have to be reminded of these events is because we keep on glossing over them and we keep on trying to adhere to the status quo in order to preserve our sense of 
individuality, our sense of uh, being able to succeed within a system that's actually not meant for us to succeed in. So we have to actually see that there's more to life than that. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing all of that. That was really beautifully said. And I, I think probably anyone listening understands that push and pull of feeling the doomerism, feeling you know, like there's no hope, but then also those moments, those required moments of revolutionary hope that we need because, you know, things are the status quo until they aren't the status quo. And that just, that comes from people. So this is the point where we like to hand out some awards for our film. Our first award is a point with a view. So this will go to the character with the best politics in the movie. I mean... I was going to say, it seems like Fred Hampton is the easy answer, but I'm actually going to go with comrade Deborah Johnson, uh, a.k.a. Akua and Jerry, because she gets one up on Fred a few times. Like, she's the one in the beginning that says to him, like, hey, you're a poet. You're also kind of being a little bit of a dick. Maybe, like, cool it to bring more people in. And then she's the one that brings up the entire concept of dedicating your life and your eventual death to the revolution and what that the implications on, on that are on a family and which is something that Fred doesn't seem to be thinking about at the time. So I know Fred has like the best politics, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to give this to comrade Deborah Johnson. Ryan, I think I would um naturally give it to Fred just because it's funny because it just centers mainly on not only his politics, but also his um, perseverance. And I think that's the ultimate key to um, really being able to showcase that you have the knowledge that is able to set people free. Because if you are able to persevere almost seemingly without um, any effort, then that gives people just the ultimate satisfaction to say, yes, he was murdered, he was assassinated, but you still see that his influence stands to this day. And I think Deborah Johnson, Koye Najari, she um she carries that as well with her son, Fred Hampton Jr. And I believe that's the ultimate testament to him as well. Yes. That's a tie. Fred and Comrade Deborah, yeah. All right, Ryan, our second award is called Despicable You, and this goes to the character with the worst politics. In the- Jagger Hoover. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, didn't even think about it. Jagger Hoover, for all of the reasons, racist, disgusting. Fucking horrible. Roy Mitchell comes at a close second. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or that other FBI agent, the the other guy who was always smoking his cigarettes. Yeah. He's pretty he was pretty terrible too. Mm-hmm. And he was always going on about stories about what they were doing and Because there are there are a couple of small moments where Roy Mitchell where he learns how they're manipulating the other informant or the fact that they're gonna try to assassinate Hampton, where he's like you see in Jesse Plemons' eyes where he's like, Oh, we do that shit? Like I didn't <laughs> I didn't realize we did that shit too. Oh, that's mm-hmm. kinda mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fucked up but then ultimately goes along with it anyway so yeah jesse plemons also was amazing and actually i meant to bring this up in our larger discussion but there is that one scene which is sort of the centerpiece scene that big speech that hampton gives when he gets out of jail 
And that scene in this film, I mean, this scene alone is why I'm like, this film should have won an Academy Award for Best Picture because what they are able to do is tie in all the plot lines. Um, but you have uh, Mitchell, Jesse Plemons shows up and he is undercover as probably a young patriot or something in the crowd, makes eye contact with O'Neill. And you also have Deborah pregnant having this realization uh, yeah. that her revolutionary partner is going to put the revolution, you know, necessarily has to put the revolution before potentially being a father and, you know, a partner. And there's so much happening and it's so well crafted and so well done. And we've talked about this before, but if you're going to make a film like this, it's got to be good. And this film is good on all levels. It's like an entertaining film as well as packing in all of these politics and all of these ideas. So complex and so well done. Okay, our last award is A Star is Scorned. And this goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. Interesting. Ooh, ooh, Comrade Judy. Oh, yeah. Was that, was she played by um the actress in Black Panther Wakanda Fever? Dominique. Is that her? She's played by Dominique Thorne. Yes, that's her. Yeah, Judy Harmon. She was, she was, they were, everyone's such fantastic, but yeah, I would like to see her biopic. I think um, it's a tie for me between her and Jake Winters in some mm, form, uh, yeah. who was the Panther who was gunned down by police after a shootout after he discovered his friend, at least within the film. I'm not sure if it was um, accurate to the actual events, but he was in a shootout. I'm not just sure as to whether or not it was due to his friend being potentially murdered by um, law enforcement, but I wouldn't be surprised. I think I'd want to see the the movie about the FBI's entire history of Quintel Pro. Basically a documentary. I think I want a documentary about it. It's just like, here's just all of the terrible things that they've done. They're undeniable. They're inexcusable. And here they all are, are all laid out in one place for you to learn about. That's I think that'd be a, a useful uh, educational documentary. That's funny because that gives me perspective on, you know, if they had actually done it correctly, um, then... The J. Edgar Hoover biopic with DiCaprio, yeah, would have been a great um, uh, way to showcase that. But but we think not. <laughs> but here, <laughs> think, here we are. They didn't quite go there, did they? <laughs> so Ryan, before we wrap up, we like to discuss how we, as artists and people, strive to practice our values in our lo- in our own lives, even with all their complexities and contradictions. So. Is there one thing that you do in your life, could be like an anti-capitalist practice or just a values-based practice, something that you do, um, something that you're, pra- you're, you're trying to do, and it could be anything, but is there one thing that you'd like to share? You know, it's uh, funny because there's all these things that center around like capitalism overall, but I usually um, try to showcase and center my uh, political beliefs and my overall views on capitalism within my art it's always showcased in every uh project that i do even if it's not my own where i um give interviews or i give um my own uh thoughts that 
always somehow center around capitalism, even if the maybe I'm doing like, I don't know, a, a Garfield shorts. <laughs> It'll be like, OK, how does this relate to capitalism in some way? You know what? I I can figure it out, you know, so I always try to at least tell people and showcase it to them in ways that just get them to think. And I join workshops. I join uh, different uh, centered um, projects that really center on the idea of, if not capitalism, then ultimate solidarity. Mm. I love that. I think that's such an important thing that we all can do, which is just like constant political education. And, you know, there's like we've been talking about, there's a big stigma in this country of like, oh, that that, that person got political again. That's annoying. Well, it's like, no, this is all of our lives mm -hmm. and uh, it's important. So thanks for sharing that with us, Ryan. Where can our audience find you and your work? I am on Instagram as ride that black guy because I figured that that would be the most appropriate title for my uh, Instagram name because I don't see anything else really um, that that doesn't clearly define me. And I'm, uh, I am in a off-Broadway um, show that is uh, known as Port Chicago 50. Uh, we were um, previously um, Centered in Theater Row, and now we're going to be uh, migrating to another theater, and I'll be informing the audiences about that soon enough. And yeah, that's basically um, my platform. Fantastic. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for picking this film and taking time to have this conversation with us. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching Kevin Smith's Meditation on the Plight of the Working Man, Clerks. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. 